Notice anything different? That's right. No ad. Which means this space is available. So if you have a company or brand or product or anything really that you'd love to promote on 30 Pop, this is your chance. Just shoot me an email at the link in the show notes and I'll give you all the relevant details. Now, on to 30 Pop. Hello? Aaron? Luke? Hey man, it's been a while. Hey man, I'm actually like I are you did are you just trying to get a recording for 30 pop? I am, yeah. Are you in a rush? Oh, I'm just like in the middle of do it, shooting an audition. <laughs> but I saw that you were calling and I didn't I didn't know cuz you called. Yeah, no, yeah, it's fine. It's fine. That's actually why I was calling was just cuz it's been a while and I just was wondering yeah. if you're ever 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 coming back on the show. Luke, I want to. Will you ever have me back I on? I invite you all the time. Don't <laughs> you I don't think you I I haven't been invited in a long time. Will you join you me on will you me. join me on next week's episode of 30 Pop? I would love to. Perfect. Let's plan on it. Okay. I feel better. Thanks, man. Yeah. <laughs> hey, good luck with your audition. Yeah. Hey, thanks. See you later. All right, see ya. From Milieu Media Group, this is 30 Pop, a weekly peek back at the music, movies, sports, fashion, politics, and news from 30 years ago. I'm your host, Luke Bronner. This is Season 2, Episode 3, Bologna and Beans for Breakfast. Today, we're looking back at the week that ended Saturday, January 20th, 1990. Hello, friends. Welcome once again to 30 Pop. I'm very excited about today's episode as I got to chat with a couple of really great guests about a film that released 30 years ago this week on January 19th, 1990, the cult classic Tremors. But first, let's see what else was happening in the world of pop culture. In music, the number one spot on the Billboard album chart was reclaimed this week by Phil Collins' Fantastic But Seriously. But Phil Collins lost the number one single spot to soulful, curly-haired, former heavy metal frontman Michael Bolton with his song, How Am I Supposed to Live Without You, off his June 1989 release, Soul Provider. He'll hold that spot for a few weeks, so we'll definitely revisit that song in a couple weeks in a brand new segment that I'm super excited about. At the top of the Billboard Hot Country chart this week for the first of three consecutive weeks was Clint Black's very simple, very depressing, but honestly very well written, Nobody's Home. This was the third single off Black's record Killin' Time, and his third single in a row to hit number one on the country charts. The Hot Rap charts also got a new number one song in Salton Peppa's Expression, which we'll also revisit in the next couple of weeks. And the R&B and hip-hop charts saw the rise of Quincy Jones, Ray Charles, and Shaka Khan's I'll Be Good To You. Also in music, on January 18, 1990, British rock and blues guitar legend Eric Clapton played the first of a remarkable 18 shows in a three-week span at London's Royal Albert Hall. Which just sounds exhausting to me, although probably significantly less exhausting than actually touring, I guess. In television, on January 14, 1990, the first regular episode of The Simpsons aired on Fox. The series had debuted in December with a Christmas special, but wouldn't become a regular weekly staple until the release of this episode, entitled Bart the Genius. 
And a few days later, on January 20th, the film and television industries put on all their fancy clothes and jewelry for the 47th annual Golden Globe Awards and walked the red carpet to find out who was the best of the best in 1989. In some cases, they got it absolutely right, but in others, they got it very, very wrong. For example, somehow Sally Field did not win Best Actress in a Drama for her stunning performance as Malin in Steel Magnolias. Instead, Michelle Pfeiffer won for her role as Susie Diamond in The Fabulous Baker Boys. And I'm sure she was great, but I have a really hard time believing she outperformed The Marvelous Miss Field. I've included a link in the show notes to see all the winners, and you should definitely check it out. Especially if you plan on attending our 30 Pop Trivia Night this month, which is happening this week on Tuesday, January 21st at Cafeza, as always. And now on to the main event. 30 years ago this week, on January 19th, 1990, the cult classic sci-fi horror comedy Tremors released. Starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Reba McIntyre, and former Family Ties TV dad Michael Gross. I seriously loved and still love this movie. So it was especially fun this week to hop on a call with Michael Gross to talk about his fantastic role in this film and soon-to-be seven-film franchise. Here's our conversation. Michael, welcome to 30 Pop. Thanks so much for being on today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. It is such a joy to get to talk to you as a longtime fan of your work, not only in the Tremors franchise, but also I was a huge Family Ties fan. So it's just such a joy to get to talk to you today. Well, uh, two good projects and projects of which I'm proud. I was happy to be a part of both and uh, family ties for seven years and now tremors for 30 my golly isn't that crazy yeah (laughs) so 30 years ago this past week tremors released in theaters i would just love to hear so you play the character burt gummer sort of a gun fanatic survivalist (laughs) yes uh, yeah like a doomsday prepper prepper. yeah Uh, yeah and husband to reba mcintyre's character which is also very fun exactly and i must say it was a real um a real joy to be a part of it. Not the least because I was just finishing Family Ties when Tremors was beginning filming. And after seven years of playing a character on a top 10 series, the question is always, will there be life after this? And will there be life playing very different sorts of characters? And that question was answered, both questions were answered by my being cast in Tremors. And uh, I look back with a great deal of fondness because uh, these were people who, I remember in in the audition asking uh, the director and the two writers, "Have you got your heads on straight? You know, I'm, I'm, a, why am I here? Yeah. Well, what, what what prompted you guys to do this? Because Hollywood is so much addicted to types and people see, wanting you to play the same character all the time for which you're best known. And they said, well, we had just seen other work of yours. We thought you were a good actor. And we just thought we'd bring you in. What the heck? Yeah. So you couldn't have played a more different character. So Stephen Keaton in Family Ties to Burt Gummer. So you're sort of like this hippie family man in, in or former hippie family man in Family Ties. And then to be, you know, this doomsday prepper. What was that like for you? Just sort of shifting gears in that way? Well, for the long run, long before I did television, I was a theater actor and I was accustomed in working at various theaters to playing, oh, five or six different characters in one year, you know, mm-hmm. in different shows. And so the idea of changing gears was not at all foreign to me. And to me, the most fun 
it's it, I would say the equivalent for some people is like uh, eating chicken for seven years. Here's a great piece of fish. Okay, great, lovely. I'll I'll eat that. I mean, I, I love the idea of variety, in other words. And during the seven years of family ties, I was also doing other sorts of things during hiatus times. Mm. So during the times we were not filming family ties, I was doing the occasional television film, the odd feature and plays in which I portrayed very different sorts of characters. But it's absolutely true. Stephen Keaton couldn't have been more different than Burt Kummer. Stephen Keaton was the eternal optimist, always looked on the good side. Burt is a pessimist, always looks on the bad side. Something bad is always going to happen. Stephen is a best case scenario sort of guy. Burt Kummer, the worst case scenario, you know, and mm-hmm. pre- preparing always for the worst case scenario. You know, some catastrophe is just around the corner with Burt. Always. And of course, the silly fun in Tremors was that uh, he was absolutely right. There was catastrophe waiting around the corner. And he was one of the few people who was prepared for Armageddon. Monster Armageddon. I'll never forget. I mean, I, I we used to watch this movie all the time when I was a kid. So I was like ten years old when this came out, and I just loved it. And I remember the end. You pull out what is, it's like an elephant rifle or something. Yeah, <laughs> this yes, just massive. Yes. I forget gun. what I just, gauge that was. Yes, yes, yes. With these huge single cartridges. Yeah, they're about six inches long, and. Uh, yeah, that was just hilarious. And that reveal as Bert and Heather Gummer back up to that wall of guns yes. was one of the greatest comic reveals I think I've seen in any in any movie. It's so good. You know, thinking they're just about doomed and then they, they back up and there's enough arms for, for a, an entire platoon. And what was fun when it was in uh, the movie houses, I, I saw it a couple times because it's such fun to watch an audience's reaction. Oh, sure. You don't know what people are going to, you make a film. And in many cases, when I make a television movie, you don't know what people are doing or saying as they're watching it. But that's the beauty of a feature release, a theatrical release, is you can go there and experience it with other people and say, oh, that's the part they like. Oh, that joke worked. That one didn't, you know, all that sort of thing. So one of the biggest laughs was always that reveal as we backed into that wall and audiences would just forever after they were just in love with Bert and Heather. They just couldn't get enough of them because it was so over the top ridiculous. So one fun thing about this movie, Kevin Bacon, obviously huge star. He had already done Footloose. He'd already had a couple of pretty big movies, but this was really sort of, in my mind, a marker of like the beginning of a pivot in his career to where he started to like really, really become a household name. And so I'm just so curious what it was like being on set with him at that particular point in his career. Well, first of all, Kevin was very easy, easy to work with, thoroughly professional, always prepared, full of ideas. You know, he was just, he was a pro. Affable, easy to work with. You know, he was serious about the work, but not serious about life. (laughs) You know what I mean? He was just easy, uh, jocular relationship. Nice to everybody on the set. Of course, I didn't, you know, realize where he was or wasn't in his career at that point in terms of, as you say, a pivot point. Nobody knows what those points are until they get a bit of distance in retrospect sure. to see what was what was really going on. But all I know is he was thoroughly committed to the work, fun to be around. It was actually an interesting time. He was under, I wouldn't say stress, but he was slightly preoccupied by the fact that his wife, Kira Sedgwick, 
was on the set quite a lot and pregnant with their first child. And Kira was massive. <laughs> so much so that when I've seen her in later years, I mean, I don't see her as the same woman. I mean, she was, she really, this was a large baby. She carried it. And I just, I didn't know she was so thin in real life until I saw her later yeah. after the baby was born because she was this, you know, really large woman and gorgeous. You know, I mean, she was always beautiful, but I've seen her lately and think, oh my God, she's a stick. Well, even a couple children now, but that was their first child. And so Kevin was a bit preoccupied with the birth of their first child, who in fact came along during the filming of Tremors. Oh, wow. I didn't realize so, that. Uh, you know. So happy cigars all around. Yeah. yeah. And so this was also, if I'm not mistaken, this is Reba McIntyre's acting debut. It's at least her like feature film debut. Yes, that's as far as I know, that's correct. That's absolutely correct. Reba was just so, you know, down to earth and real and, you know, just, you know, she did a great job and she was a great collaborator. We got along very well. I did hear from somebody else <laughs> later on that, Somebody had said in a book, a little memoir they wrote, that uh, Reba was like, oh, my God, I'm so tired. That Michael Gross puts me through his paces. He just wants to do it again and again and again until he gets it right. And, you know, and she said, I just thought it was fine the first time. You know, all that sort of thing. So, again, I may have driven her a little crazy, but not too crazy because we have stayed in touch over the years. And, That's you know, awesome. uh, Not close contact, but, you know, we've reached out to each other over the years from time to time. And she's a doll. And so I guess I didn't bug her too much, but I guess I've, I've always been a perfectionist and always very much aware, particularly in film that boy, once that camera stops and you move on to the next scene, it's forever. I mean, you can go back and fix it, but usually there's not the budget to say, okay, we're going to reshoot all these scenes that didn't work the first time. And so I was, Bert was a very specific character, very special kind of guy. And so I always wanted to make sure I wasn't bringing any of the wrong stuff to it. Bert was, to me, a very specific kind of guy, that comic paranoia. You know, I think one of the funniest things about him is that he has no sense of humor. Everything is so dead serious. So I wanted to make sure that I was really being true to Bert every time I, I did a scene. And so I may have, I don't know, I'm a, as I said, I think I wore Reba out. But... Uh, but we had a great time. We had a wonderful time. She was so sweet. We spent a lot of time, you know, off camera, just, you know, grabbing meals together and things like that. Yeah. You know, just hanging out a little bit here and there. So maybe you can confirm yeah. whether this is true. I've heard a rumor that the roles of Bert and Heather Gummer were originally intended for Chuck Norris and Linda Hamilton. Do you know if that's true? Wow. No. And that's the first I've ever heard that. Yeah. So I was reading up on Wikipedia and the, uh, I guess the co-franchise creator, Brent Maddock, who yeah. wrote the script, originally imagined the roles being played by Chuck Norris and Linda Hamilton, which I just think is, is I can really certainly funny. get that. I can certainly get that because those are logical choices. People who have been great doing those roles. And I think writers often write with someone in mind. They see a face. They see a a character, and I totally get that. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to see Brent Maddock in two weeks. Oh, nice! And I'm going to ask him if that's the case. Yes, uh, I've I would never love talked to, know. to him about that. Brent Maddox, SS, Steve Wilson, and Ron Underwood, and I are all going to be together at a kind of Tremors reunion, 30th reunion thing, in the uh, Museum of Western Film History in Lone Pine, California, where we filmed it. So they're having a screening of the original. 
oh, a panel discussion, tours of the old uh, location sites, the town of Perfection and some of these other places where we had our final standoffs with the monsters and things like that. So we're going to tour some of the old sites and spend a whole weekend with the writers, Ron Underwood. And I've got to ask about that, Linda Hamilton. And what was, it, what was the other one? And Chuck Norris. Chuck Norris. Well, see, yeah, I mean, I, those are logical choices, which is precisely why I asked these guys in the audition room, why am I even here? Yeah. You know, this is not the type with which I'm, I mean, I'm happy to be here, but did you guys have a stroke or something? What, what, yeah. you know, a brain freeze? What prompted you to even bring me in? And they were just willing to take a chance. And thank God for that. You know, people who are, this is one of their first big films together, these guys. And for them to be chance taking on a first time out of the gate was huge. And some would call it foolhardy. Some would call it courageous. Yeah. But for them to say, oh, we're going to cast against type. Well, first of all, you know, they've taken a chance because they've got to get studio approval for all that sort of thing. And the fact that I just finished seven years on Family Ties helped with that. I'm sure had I been a complete nobody, they may not have cast me, you know. Sure. So I was somewhat of a name. I wasn't Chuck Norris and I wasn't that type, but. The studio went, well, okay, if you think you can do it, let's, you know, we'll give it a, a green light. You know? Yeah, and here we are 30 years later. We've got, you said you just wrapped the seventh film. Y'all have done a the TV seventh. series. Have you been a part of all of those? Yes, a part of all seven films. A part of the television series with the exception of one, I think one of those 13 episodes. Because while they were shooting the TV series, I left early to start Tremors 4. So it was a very busy time. It was a very yeah. busy time right there. For some reason, they just, you know, gave it a green light at the same time that the series was finishing up. And I had to pre-shoot a scene or two in the series and run away and start Tremors 4. So I assume you just couldn't have known back then the cult classic that it would become or just that how much of your career would end up being dedicated to these monsters? No, not at all. And not the least of which because... It did not do that well in the uh, theatrical release. Really? Well, it did all right, but it wasn't long enough to justify a long run. I think it was only out about a week, and it was like, okay, next week, something else. And so I thought, along with Kevin Bacon and a lot of others, the story I heard is that, again, this is apocryphal. I didn't hear this from Kevin himself, but the people at Universal seemed to suggest to me that Kevin thought the film had been a failure. Really? That is to say, not enough people saw it. It was not this big hit. It was not at all a big hit with a theatrical release. And it was only after a, a couple of years that it had found its way in the aftermarket videos that Universal decided to make a second one because it found a whole life after it had been in the movie theaters. That's wild to me because it's such a part of my childhood, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and I'm guessing you saw it on video, right? You didn't see it in the theaters. That's I'm almost certain that's right. Yeah, we used to just rent it all yeah, the time. Yeah, yeah, the VHS days. And that's when it really caught on. It started passing from one person to another by word of mouth, said, you got to see this. This is quirky little film. It's really weird. Kevin Bacon's in it, blah, 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 Reba. Uh, you got to check this out. And that's where it started catching on. So I think one of the reasons Kevin... I mean, again, this is a total guess on my behalf, is that Kevin went, why would I want to do a second one of those? The first one didn't do that well. Now, my own feeling on that score is that, well, Kevin, of course, was wonderful. He and Fred Ward, 
carrying that film as they did, but that Universal really didn't know how to advertise it. Mm. It wasn't a straight horror film. It wasn't a straight Western. It wasn't straight action adventure. It wasn't straight comedy. It was all of the above. Yeah, it's true. It was this comic Western action adventure, sci-fi monster movie. Yeah. Now, where do you put that in a handy little niche? You don't know how to advertise it. And I, they advertise it as a straight horror film. And I remember it well, and some people say, oh, no, it's more than that. I mean, it's no more a straight horror film than Naked Gun was a detective movie. You know, it, you can say, well, it's a whodunit. It's a detective film. Well, no, it's quite a lot different than that. Yeah. In the same way, Tremors was difficult to define, difficult to put in a handy little niche. And I think a lot of people in the uh, advertising department didn't know what to do with it. And I think that was part of its, I won't say complete failure, but the fact that it, it wasn't a runaway hit at the box office theatrically. And Kevin Bacon was a good marketable name. And God knows Reba McIntyre. So I think they kind of blew it the first time around. Universal, that is to say. with You know, Reba and Kevin should have been at the top of that heap in terms of uh, marketing and Instead, all you saw was a big old gaping monster. I remember so well the uh, the cards that went up in the lobbies, the, the jaws of this monster about to swallow Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward, and that was uh, that was pretty much it. You know, yeah, it would have been great to have Kevin return. Yeah, he's a he's a wonderful actor with a great range, and uh, it's a pity. And I I only rose to the top of the heap because people like Kevin bought out. I always felt that Burt Gummer should not be a lead in any film that he was best served by having normal human beings around him yeah. so that he, by contrast, was interesting. It was like Fonzie with the Cunningham family in Happy Days. Fonzie was fascinating because he was surrounded by normal human beings who thought him weird and crazy in the same yeah. way Bert works best when he's surrounded by normal human beings because then he's truly outrageous so anyway i would have loved for kevin to come back but it wasn't to be well excited to check out the next one and can't thank you enough for taking a few minutes to be on 30 pop and just talk about this like i said cult classic i love 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 this movie thanks i'm glad this worked out take care now you too really loved this conversation with Michael and was excited again later that evening when I got an email from S.S. Wilson, one of the writers who came up with this movie, as well as Short Circuit, Batteries Not Included, and all kinds of really great 90s movies, saying he was also up for chatting. So we hopped on a call a few days later and reminisced a bit more. Mr. Wilson, thanks so much for being on. Welcome to 30 Pop. Thank you. Happy to be here. I am so excited to get to talk to you because among many of my favorite movies from the 80s and 90s, you are one of the writers for Tremors, which is now 30 years old. Yes, it is. So I'm so curious with this film. So there were a few of you that wrote it, if I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Well, the screenplay is by me and Brent, and the story I worked out, we worked out with the director, Ron Underwood. Okay, so where did this crazy story come from? Well, if we actually do know that. One of my very first film jobs while I was still a student at USC uh, Film School, uh, as I edited movies for the Navy out in the big 
Navy base out in the middle of the Mojave Desert, rather mm. near where we shot trimmers. And uh, one of the things you could do as an employee out there is you could hike around on the gunnery ranges when they weren't using them for that. And I was climbing around on these big rocks one day and I made the note, gee, wouldn't it be funny if there was something under the sand and I couldn't get off this rock and it was like an island. And that note sat in a file folder for many years, over 10 years, and waited until Brent and I had sold Short Circuit and become Hollywood screenwriters and had an agent. And she encouraged us to produce movies as well as write movies. And she said, but to do that, you're going to have to write something on spec or sell it on spec so we can control it. What ideas do you have? And so that old note came out of the file folder and we ran a bunch of the ideas by her and she stopped us and said, Oh, I like that land shark idea. <laughs> land shark. Uh, love that. Which is funny because we couldn't call it that right around that time was when Saturday night live started doing land shark. So yeah. we knew that title was gone even before we started. And they ended up over the course of the series, they ended up being called graboids. Is that right? Yes, the creatures are called Graboids. Where does that name come from? It came out of this endless struggle to come up with a decent title. We never were fans of Tremors. Uh, Universal finally insisted on that when we had trouble making up our minds. We wanted to call it Beneath Perfection because we thought it should be. It was a quirky movie. We, we realized as we were into it and, and as the executive Jim Jacks supported us at Universal, he was a huge movie guy. He knew everything about the history of movies and he recognized what it was, kind of a B-movie made over so we thought Beneath Perfection would be a cool title, but the head of the studio flipped out when he heard that title, said, no way you're calling it that. So we searched for a title also in what we would call the monsters. And I think it was Ron Underwood who said, well, they grab you. They grab you from under the ground. So we worked that into the script and we had uh, Walter Chang come up with the name Graboids somewhere in the movie. And it's funny, it never took, really. I mean, fans call them that now, but for years, fans called them the Tremors. Oh, <laughs> because, that's really funny. Because, to, you know, to a little kid, the movie's called Tremors, yeah. so those things must be Tremors. Well, and I was a little kid, so I was 10 years old when this came out, and I loved this movie. <laughs> but, you know, I had Thank Michael you. Gross on earlier in the episode, and one of the things that he pointed out, he's like, you know, the film didn't actually do that well at the box office. It was in home video. And I was like, you know, sure enough, like, that's how I saw this. We used to rent it all the time. My brother and I loved it. We would rent <laughs> it all the time. And so I was one of those kids that just loved it. You know, he talked about how it was marketed really as a horror film. And it's not in, you know, like the truest form. It's not a scary movie. But for a 10-year-old kid, it was like my first sort of dipping my toe in the water of horror. And so it was like a horror movie yeah. that I could handle, you know, and I just... Pretty intense, yeah, but has its lighter moments, yeah. For sure. And, and I already, you know, loved Kevin Bacon at that point. And so there was at least like this familiar face on screen that, that I trusted. And so <laughs> I'm curious on IMDb, it says that you served as second unit director. I don't know exactly what that is, but I assume that means you were on set as the film was being made as well. I, oh, well, the whole point of doing this movie was so that Brent and I would have more control. The, the odd thing that happened to us when we became screenwriters, when we sold short circuit is we discovered what all writers in Hollywood know that we didn't realize is that you have no say over your movie and you're not even welcome on the set. In wow. A lot of cases. Yeah. And that didn't always happen to us, but but it was pretty much the case. And that's why our agent said, well, well, you guys are talking about producing, not writing. So, yes, we were all over the set and we were all over Ron up to the point where Michael Gross got mad at us one day and said, you guys are always whispering to Ron. Can we just all have it out in the open here? <laughs> 
we didn't realize right up front that we were going to need a second unit. We considered ourselves a small movie. Second unit is the film unit that goes around and gets little bits and pieces that oh, the main gotcha. unit should okay. not waste time on. In fact, if you check out the Stampede website, I am currently posting some very, very old video that my dad shot of second unit. Never before seen. I've got about three or four episodes up so far. I call it Tremors the Lost Tapes because I didn't really think how valuable it was when dad was doing it. But this was before cell phones, before anybody was allowed to have a camera on set. And he came down with his video camera and he just started shooting. <laughs> so there's like 20 hours of stuff to go through. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Tremors. So Stampede is your production company, right? Yeah. Okay. That's correct. Yeah. So yeah, so I was second unit director. So I had run under with the director and I had worked for years in the short film business, making films for schools back when they did that. And I had often served as the effects guy or the second unit guy or the guy that added animation, things like that. And he would direct. So when we got into this binding, we were falling behind and we realized, Jesus, we got to get to have another unit working here because we're, we're going to fall behind. Ron said, well, you should do it. And I said, but what do you mean I should do it? And he said, well, you've always done it on the short films. That's what you did. And I said, well, OK. I ended up with a crew of about 100 on some days. Goodness gracious. The Universal, at a certain point, got behind us. They recognized that they liked what we were doing and we were not going to waste their money. So they got behind us and actually supported the second unit then, which was great. You know, So we were able to pull off some pretty big effects in second unit then. So I asked that question. So knowing now that you were super you know, involved in, in the production, I assume then the Graboids, the monsters – turned out the way that you all were imagining them when you we wrote are, the script. We're very happy. Overall, we're very happy with the movie, yes. And the look of the Graboids was something that, as many things did on this movie, we, we were just blessed on this movie. Sometimes movies just come together, even low-budget ones. Gail Ann Hurd, who helped us get it going at Universal, knew the effects guys, Tom Woodruff and Alec Gillis, and they were just stepping away from the companies where they had worked and had opened their own company. They didn't even have an office when we first met. <laughs> we had to meet in a restaurant. And they so they read the script, and there's not a huge amount of description of the Graboids in the script. It's, it's, there's a little bit, but not much. And so we met with them, talked to them, talking about what we thought they should look like and that they should be sort of torpedo shaped and that kind of thing. And the big thing for us was we wanted the mouth to be different. We wanted the mouth to be weird. And we said it opened like a flower or something. We said, yeah. And the very first drawing they brought us just knocked us out. We just went, oh, my God, that's a graboid. And there was almost no discussion after that. That's amazing. Said, there it is. I have to assume <laughs> you guys had no idea that you were developing a cult classic at that point, that well, it would no, and, evolve yeah, into what it has yeah, evolved into. We certainly didn't. And you know, we were happy with the movie, but we were disappointed as Universal was, you know, in how it performed at the box office. I don't think it lost money, but it didn't, you know, it wasn't a breakaway hit. It wasn't, you know, Blair Witch Project. Yeah. And uh, Universal was, I don't blame them, by the way. It was a weird movie. You know, it was a weird blend of comedy and horror. And the marketing department just wasn't sure how to handle it. And so they made their best guess and they went out with a big campaign and the posters in New York and everything, but kind of just laid there. And then, uh, you know, but then it was saved by, you know, the advent of VHS tape happened right after that. Mm -hmm. It got to be really big after that. And it's a few years later, then they called us up and said, we got to have Tremors too. And we're like, what? Why? 
And now we're seven movies. Y'all just wrapped the production on the seventh <laughs> seven one. Movies, is what yeah, I heard. Michael, I think just finished the seventh one in Thailand or someplace. That is just wild. So you mentioned it not yeah, performing terribly well at the box office, but over the course of your career, according to IMDb, films that you have written have grossed over a quarter of a billion dollars. That's got to feel pretty good. <laughs> I've never read that one. Thank you. Yes, yeah. I mean, that's that just my own journal over here. $267 million <laughs> gross box office from the films that have come from your imagination. And I just think that is extraordinary. And like I said, before we started talking, I didn't realize until I started researching for this call, how many of my like childhood favorite movies you had written. So I loved Short Circuit and Short Circuit 2. I loved Batteries Not Included. Ghost Dad, I remember loving. Heart and Souls as a movie. I have a specific memory of seeing that in theaters. Like I just, I had no idea that's who I was hopping on the phone with. Yeah. Yeah, I loved that movie. You're one of the very few people who saw Heart and Souls. Yeah, I absolutely saw it in theaters and I loved it. And I remember, you know, because I was young, let's see, I was 93, so I was just barely a teenager at that point. And I remember thinking like, oh, I I, I saw a grown-up movie and I liked it. (laughs) Like, what do you know? Uh, Fantastic, yeah. Tremors was a success compared to Heart and Souls. And Heart and Souls baffled everybody. I mean, we had Robert Downey, we had this incredible cast, we had this great story, and nobody understood what happened to that movie. That's wild. See, I didn't know any of that. It's just a movie I saw and <laughs> right. loved. And, no, as a and, kid, you just go to the movies and go, yeah, movies, all right. Yeah. So I'm curious, maybe you can settle this for me. I read something somewhere. I asked Michael about it. He said he had never heard this, but you could answer it authoritatively. I read that when y'all were writing the script, that you were originally imagining Chuck Norris and Linda Hamilton playing the roles that Michael Gross and Reba McIntyre played is that true that is probably mythological because we were very involved in the casting process brent and i were there for all the readings and the way reba and michael came to it the the reason i say that's probably not the case i mean i I don't remember certainly ever saying that because we just went into this thing and it's a low budget movie and we're not going to get a name cast yeah but universal was walking a line you know they they wanted cast that they could point to you know, that would bring cachet to the, to the box office. And so, you know, it, it was make or break getting Kevin. You know, we were very nervous yeah. the day Ron went off to have runs with Kevin because the movie didn't go if we didn't get Kevin Bacon. And so we did get Kevin. And then they began to shore up their casting in other ways. And they said, you have to read Michael Gross because he's a huge TV star. You don't have to take him. We're not going to say you have to take him. And you have to read Reba McIntyre because she wants to act and she's a big MCA music star. Oh, God, really? Really? The father from Family Ties? Really? The music lady? And they both blew us away. You know, they came in and Michael was just astonishing in his reading. And so was Reba. And here she was, you know, I was standing on the set the day she said her first line on a movie. She has done fairly well since then. That is just wild. So, yeah, we certainly never said that to Universal, but I will say that when Universal was thinking about casting, those names could have been floated in some meeting somewhere, and I wouldn't have known. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, know that you have a fan in me of so much of your work, and I'm just so excited to get to talk to you. And happy 30th birthday to this fantastic (laughs) film. Thank you so much. Happy to be here still. Thanks so much for your time, and uh, we'll talk to you again in the future. My pleasure. Thanks for checking in with me. Q 
Huge thanks to Mr. Gross and Wilson for taking time out of their busy schedules to be a part of this episode of 30 Pop. And thanks, as always, to you for taking time out of your busy schedule to listen. I'll be back next week for more pop culture nostalgia. In the meantime, remember, running's not a plan. Running's what you do once a plan fails. 30 Pop is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. Our artwork is by the amazing Heather Hale. To check out more shows from Mill U Media Group, visit millumedia.com, which is linked in the show notes for this episode. And if you have a story from 1990 that you want to share on the air, email 30poppodcast at gmail.com. <laughs>